0: We are continuing our study of Hebrews. Uh, Let me pray for us and we'll get started this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity once again to gather together around your word uh, to both study the book of Hebrews and be reminded how it is that we go about studying your word. Father, we pray that you would lead us by your spirit into the truth this morning, that we would be encouraged and built up. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so remember... Uh, we are, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming in necessarily with a full outline prepared and a whole homiletical sort of, you know, uh, thing. Uh, I've spent time in the text this week. I'm familiar with the text. I'm ready to, to walk through it together. But what I'm really wanting to do is, uh, is engage in Bible study sort of in front of you, so to speak. I, I, want, I want you to see how it is that we do this so that you can do it yourself during the week. Uh, and so, as we get back into Hebrews this morning, chapter three, we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter three. Uh, I want to remind uh, remind you of some things about he- Hebrews and what the author is doing, uh, and then we're going to to begin where good Bible study always begins, and that's with observation. Uh, we're not going to to read it and rush straight to what does it mean and how do we apply it. We have to pause. and and pay attention to what the author's doing, the words he uses, uh, the way he shapes things, because in that, we're going to see, as we saw last time, uh, he's quoting the Old Testament, and when he does, if we'll go back to the Old Testament and read it in context, it's going to give us insight into what he's doing here. And so it's important that we do those things. And so I want to encourage you uh, to be reading Hebrews during the week, If uh, if you find yourself thinking I I don't read the Bible enough, and uh, and you say well maybe I'll sit down and read it, what should I read? It'd be a good idea to read Hebrews, read Hebrews, read Genesis, read Daniel. These are the three books that we're in right now in our morning and evening sermon series and in Sunday school, and so be reading during the week. Uh, You can with Hebrews given an entire week. You might read the whole thing every week, at least once, maybe two or three times. Or you might really focus on the verses you know we're going to be in. And so whatever you do, spend time in Hebrews so that when we come together on Sunday mornings, you're that much more familiar with it, more prepared. You you may have questions that uh, arise from your reading of the text uh, or observations. It's not uncommon, despite spending the, the week in the text myself, to come in here and one of you will say something, and I'm thinking, I'll think, I'd, I didn't see that. A week spent in the text, and, and that was not something I noticed. Uh, I've told you guys the story about uh, learning observation in seminary uh, when uh, Professor Hendricks at Dallas Seminary uh, gave us an assignment to make 100 observations on Acts 2, verse 8. Uh, and we came back a week later ready to present our 100 observations, to turn that in, and he said, don't turn it in. Go make 100 more and come back right? On one verse in in Acts. And the the point of the lesson was you're not done. Uh, You're not going to give 30 seconds to quick observation and move on. Observation is the foundation of coming to a right understanding of the text, which then leads to uh, a right application of the text. And so we're going to do a lot of that this morning in Hebrews. Remember the author of Hebrews, this is in the New Testament, probably written shortly before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, We say that because the author of Hebrews speaks of the temple and what happens at the temple in the present tense. He's also arguing that what happens at the temple isn't necessary anymore. And one would think that if the temple had recently been destroyed, that would be fairly strong evidence in support of his case. And yet he never mentions the destruction of that temple. So, We're probably here in the 60s, uh, AD 60s, roughly 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the author of Hebrews is writing to a a community that, though it's probably ethnically mixed, Jews and Gentiles, uh, is a community that knows the Old Testament well. A community, in fact, that probably has some visceral connection to the Old Testament. A group of people who at one point in their lives were living under the law of Moses and are tempted to go back to the law of Moses right now, perhaps because of persecution. The timing on this is about right for the uh, the persecution that Nero was famous for, uh, the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Perhaps something like that is the reason why the author of Hebrews is writing to his audience, encouraging them, the entire book is really an exhortation to cling to Christ and no other. So it's got warnings in it and there's constant reminders that Christ is better than anything else that they would cling to. But it's not a random collection of things that the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is better than. All of it is rooted in Moses and, uh, and that, that uh, both what Moses did and who Moses was and the law that Moses gave that the people of Israel, for better or like, like better or worse, they, they've either done it well or not so well uh, for quite some time by the time the author of Hebrews is writing. And so Christ is not only better than all these other things, all these other things belong to Moses and the law of Moses and the covenant God made with the people through Moses, what we call the Mosaic covenant. Covenant. Christ is better than that covenant. He has a better covenant. He's a better high priest. Uh, He's he's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets that that ministered in that covenant. Uh, And so we've seen all of that. I want to remind you, too, before we look at the text this morning, that now that we've got two chapters behind us, that entire two chapters is framed by Christ being identified as a son, and as a son, the one who, with the greatest authority, brings the message. From the Father so he's better than the prophets and he's better than the angels remember the angels are, are kind of how those first two chapters are framed uh, that Christ is, is better than the angels they brought the Word of God as Jesus does but they brought it as servants Jesus brings it as God himself uh, right and so the author of Hebrews remember also throughout everything so far that we've read he has that Exodus event Moses and the people being delivered from Egypt and receiving the law. That's in the background of everything that the author is saying. Uh, And so with that in mind, let's take a look at Hebrews 3. I'm going to read all six verses, and then we're going to come back and start working through it carefully. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The first thing I want to do is ask you to take a look again at, uh, at verse 1, and uh, it, it helps if you've read chapter 2 again recently, but what in verse 1 jumps out at you as familiar language in Hebrews? The author of Hebrews, he's, he's moved on from the angel angle. Uh, he's now going to talk about Christ in contrast or compared to Moses, but in the transition, he, he's not completely laid down everything he was talking about to talk about something else. He's building an argument, layer upon layer. What do you see in that first verse that looks familiar? Brothers. Brothers. Yeah, look back at chapter 2. right? Uh, and we find it in the quotes. Uh, I look at uh, verse 12 in chapter 2 I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise and remember when we looked at this last time that, that's Christ speaking Right? it's, uh, it's from the Old Testament uh, but it's in the mouth of the Messiah that these words are placed it's Christ who calls us brothers uh, so he says therefore holy brothers he's not just Identifying the author, his relationship with the reader. He uses brothers because that's who we are in Christ. Some of your translations may say brothers and sisters. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that translation. The original Greek here just says brothers. But in that culture, in that uh, that Greco-Roman culture, when they were addressing a mixed audience, they would use the masculine plural. So it says brothers in the Greek but it's perfectly fine to understand brothers and sisters. The author of Hebrews is not only saying these things are true for us as males, right? They're true for the women as well. It's all of us together. And so brothers or brothers and sisters. It is interesting, though, the importance of of recognizing that word brother because of how it ties us to the previous chapter, right? Christ says, I will tell of you to my brothers. And so... uh, so here the author of Hebrews is not incidentally in the sort of casual way that we will refer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's, he's intentionally, there's a literary function here to him saying brothers. What else do you see in verse 1? Yeah, Graham. Graham. That's right, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, again, another reference to brothers there, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And so when we look at verse one of chapter three, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, beginning of verse two, who was faithful, right? He's a faithful high priest. So what, what you see here is a literary device that the, the authors of the New Testament uh, will use where they they sort of lock two parts together with the end of one and the beginning of the next. Remember, up at the end of chapter two, the author of Hebrews is winding down his argument with respect to angels. And so we're going to see him come back to that language of angels there at the end, right? It says in verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so if you go all the way back to chapter one, Uh, And verse 4, speaking of Christ, it says, "...having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Right, so we see angels there in verse 4. There's a references to angels throughout the rest of chapters 1 and 2, and he closes it with that final reference to the angels. It's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Here the author of Hebrews introduces the next section he's going to, and really much of the rest of the book is going to have something to do with his office of high priest, both the, his, his office as priest and himself as sacrifice being offered by the priest, the, the high priest who ministers a, a better covenant than the covenant made with Moses and the people. So we're entering a significant portion of the book here. And so having made that references to, uh, ref, final reference to angels and introduced the, the concept of the high priest, And Christ being a high priest here in chapter 3, he's going to to take that and begin to run with it. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. What else do you see in verse 1? Yeah, David. Yeah, therefore, always an important observation. Uh, Sometimes almost dizzying. Uh, how quickly logical conjunctions come at us. That's what's happening here. Therefore is a conjunction. It ties what what was said before with what comes after it. It's a logical con- conjunction because that's how it's tying them together. It's saying there's a, a consequence, there's an outcome because of what I just said, therefore this, right? And so it's really important. Uh, MacArthur's famous for saying uh, that you should ask what the therefore is there for, right? If another uh, English word that gets used to translate here, the same idea is for. Uh, The author will keep saying for this, for this. We'll see that uh, actually in the text today. So yeah, there's a a clear logical connection between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So in terms of Bible study, you would make a note, logical conjunction or therefore, right? Question mark. Uh, and in your study, you want to come back, and you want to try and wrestle with what is that logical connection. How does what the author is about to say flow logically out of what he just said? Why is this a conclusion, a proper conclusion to what he just said, right? That's what you want to do, and, and we'll, we'll try to get to that if we have time today. Let's keep going, though, with observations. What else do you see? hmm yeah that's right yep yep calling is very consistent remember the author of Hebrews all through the first two chapters is using all of this language and imagery around uh, a message words speaking messages being delivered people who deliver messages right all of that is is a, a central thematic part Of the author's work here in these first chapters. What else? High priest has authority, but when you look at the word apostle, meaning sent one, this is kind of another angle on that. That you know he has been sent to us with authority. That's right. An apostle is one who is sent with a message. Uh, And so Christ here is called an apostle and a high priest. Right? So who is an apostle's work toward? The, the ones to whom the message is sent, right? So Christ is the apostle. Uh, this is perfectly consistent with everything the author's been saying. He's, he's better than the prophets. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but now he speaks by a son, so Christ has already been compared to the prophets. And, and what do prophets do? Prophets speak the word of God to the people. Then he goes on to say, and he's, he's having finished his work, he's exalted higher than the angels. And what do angels do? Angels are the messengers of God. He's greater than the angels. Now, he continues this with the, the uh, reference to calling, a heavenly calling, and by calling Christ an apostle. Christ is the apostle. He is the sent one. So he's toward us in that respect. And then who's a high priest's work toward? God, right? The high priest represents us to God. So by calling him an apostle and a high priest, again, we see him interlocking, don't we? The the previous argument in the first two chapters is Christ as perfect messenger, son, God himself speaking to his people. And now he's going to move into the focus on Christ as high priest. And so both at the end of chapter two and here at the beginning of three, we see the two ideas crossing over. That's the author tying them together. We're, We're moving away from the Christ as messenger and towards Christ as high priest. But the two ideas are locked together. They are locked together in Christ who is both the apostle and the high priest of our confession. What else do we see in verse 1? That's a good question. Yeah, that's the kind of observation you make a note about and you you come back to later. You go looking in the commentaries to see if anybody's talking about that. Uh, But yeah, that may be. What else? Yeah, yeah, and that's actually, yeah, what's that? set 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 apart, yeah. Holy is to be set apart. There's another word in the English that is a different English word, but in the Greek behind it, is all the same, right? And that's sanctify. And if we look back in chapter two, he's already talked about us being sanctified. Look at chapter two, uh, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that is Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist and bring many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now look at what he does. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now he puts those together here in chapter 3, holy brothers. To be holy is to be sanctified. It's the same concept. So he says Christ was made perfect, that he who is sanctified would sanctify us, and that's why he calls us brothers. Now he brings that together, the author of Hebrews does, and says, therefore, holy brothers. Remember we talked about therefore? What is it in the previous that ties it. What, why does what we're reading here in 3 logically flow out of what he said in 2? This is one of the ways it logically flows out of. Therefore, because he has been able to sanctify and you are those being sanctified, therefore, holy brothers, he addresses us as holy brothers. What else do you see in 1, verse 1? One? Yep. That's right. That's that's one of my favorite observations in this verse. Uh, look at fourteen in chapter two, two fourteen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So when we come down to verse three, or chapter three, verse one, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, there's a very clear logic to the author of Hebrews here. We share with one another in flesh and blood, therefore Christ shared flesh and blood, but to an end, to a purpose. And what was the result of that purpose? What what was that purpose? What was the result of him doing that, sharing flesh and blood with us? It was that we now share with one another, yes, but with Christ in particular in a heavenly calling. The author doesn't use share here accidentally. He's not being careless and just accidentally using the same verb again he intentionally uses the language of sharing a heavenly calling here because we are those who share in flesh and blood and because jesus christ has come to share in flesh and blood with us what he did for us gives us a heavenly calling so that all of those all of us who are in christ we now not only share flesh and blood, we also share a heavenly calling with one another and with Christ. It's a very intentional use. Do you see how all of that flows out of the fact that the author of Hebrews simply decided to use the same verb, right? He wants us to see this. This is why he uses the same word. Is So we'll go share. Wait, I've already heard something about sharing. What's going on here? And you read about the fact that we share in flesh and blood, therefore Christ had to share in flesh and blood. He likewise partook of the same things. Look, there's a purpose given right there. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We've been delivered from that, as Nathan said in the sermon. Not just from that, but to something, to a heavenly calling. All of this rises up out of making the simple observation that the author wants us to see that we've now we always shared in flesh and blood. Christ began to share in flesh and blood, and what he did that for and accomplished in it provides us with a heavenly calling that we now share in with one another and with him. So uh, we're going to to go ahead and start to move on from observations in verse 1 there. Uh, but that's what it looks like to do observation. In observation, questions will rise. Uh, write them down. Don't try to answer them. That's going to slow you down. Answering the questions is beginning to lead you into the next step, which is interpretation. We, we're making observation. We're looking to see how is this structured. What language is being used? What vocabulary is being used in order to communicate to us? And how does that show? How does that reveal things to us? Uh, illuminate the meaning of the text for us. Rising out of those observations, we will be stronger. We will be better positioned to rightly understand what the author is saying, and that's interpretation, right? So you want to engage in that practice. Sometimes when we talk about meditating on God's Word, that's all we're talking about. Sit with it and make observations. Don't rush to application, uh, but just sit and make observations. In fact, you you might sit in this first step all week long. Eventually, you need to move on, right? But you you could spend an entire week just thinking about verse 1, verse 1, 2, and and noticing how the author of Hebrews is drawing what he has said into what he's saying now and what that means for us. So uh, he says then in verse 2, speaking of Christ, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, now we come to the, the meat of these six verses. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. That's actually a quote. It's not set apart the way the other quotes are in your text. Usually there's a space and, uh, and the quote's not fully justified, right? It's, uh, it's got the jagged edges in your text. And then it goes back to the block, the full justified text when the author is writing again on his own. You don't get that here. Twice he quotes... Numbers chapter 12 verse 7 so he says it here just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house and then he's going to say in verse 5 now Moses was faithful in all God's house Uh, both of those are a word-for-word direct quotation from Numbers 12 7 now we might we might do good to recognize that and say oh okay so the Old Testament said Moses was faithful in all God's house that's that's helpful author's not making it up. He's saying something that's true. But turn back to Numbers 12. This is an example of where uh, the observation, the very first observation, is that's from the Old Testament. Most of your Bibles, even if it's not a study Bible, should have a a note in Hebrews 3. Um, I'm looking at the ESV. And that refers me to verse five, now five V. Yes, uh, in my ESV, which is not a study Bible, it just, it, it is, it does have references in it. it uh, if you follow the little note from verse five, it tells you this is being quoted from Numbers 12, seven. Okay, what do you do with that? Well, let's turn back to Numbers 12 and, uh, and look at the context for verse seven. In Numbers 12, we have the incident of Miriam and Aaron opposing Moses. Uh, We're not going to take the time to read all of 12, uh, but we we are gonna, I'm just gonna describe it to remind you in case you're not familiar or you've forgotten. There's a point in Moses' ministry uh, where Miriam and Aaron are, uh, they're jealous of Moses' ministry. And they say to one another, I mean, what's going on with Moses? God speaks through us too. We're Moses equals. We ought to be treated like Moses equals is the implication of their complaint. And the text, it's fascinating. Sometimes Moses, when people are grumbling, he has to go to God and say, what, what am I supposed to do here? Here, the text says God heard their grumbling. Moses doesn't find out about it. Uh, nobody else goes to God with it. God hears the two of them Complaining against Moses, and he calls the three of them together in front, out of the camp, and in front of the tent of meeting, and he accuses Miriam and Aaron. Yeah. And just a quick note: we're told in one of my favorite verses that, that Moses is literally the meekest man in the entire world. Yes. Before we, before we get that scene, that's right. Yeah. There's this clear contrast between Moses and his brother and sister, because Aaron and Miriam are his brother and sister, which might explain some of the, the problem they've got right now, right? If, if you ever had a sibling uh, who, uh, who seemed to be getting more attention uh, or who could never do any wrong or whatever. So they're, they're put out with the fact that Moses has been elevated here. Uh, it's a lack of humility on their part. And incidentally, we're told Moses is the humblest man, the meekest man in the world, right? Uh, which is consistent with what we know about Moses so far. And so, anyways, uh, I could have read this passage and it would have been much briefer than the explanation I'm I'm giving you here. Uh, But look at verse 7. It's in that context that uh, that God, in fact, let's start in 6. God said, "'Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses.' He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Now, setting aside the quote, did any of that sound familiar from Hebrews? Do you hear what God's saying as he accuses? Aaron and Miriam? He's the best yeah, he says, Moses isn't a messenger. He's the messenger. He's the greatest messenger. I don't give him dreams and visions. I appear to him and we talk face to face. There's an implied uh, closeness there between, Aaron, or between Moses and God where the, the sort of mediating quality of God's message is removed. God does not mediate his message through dreams and visions. He speaks directly with Moses. Moses is to be revered, if you will, respected, honored for the role that God is playing here. You, Aaron and Miriam, should not be raising yourselves up. I don't speak face to face with you. Moses is my messenger, and he's the greatest messenger. There is no messenger like Moses. And we're reminded, too, from Deuteronomy, when God says to Moses in 18, chapter 18, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers. All right? And Jesus is that prophet that God eventually raises up. Do you see how all of this is tying in together? The author of Hebrews doesn't just say... he's. This is probably not his thought process. Who else is Jesus greater than? He's greater than Moses, and Moses was pretty great. I remember there's a verse in the Old Testament where it says Moses was faithful in all my house. So that's all the evidence I need, let's go on. Moses is the most faithful, Jesus is greater than Moses. The author of Hebrews is pulling this quote about Moses out of Numbers 12, not only because the quote itself serves his argument, But because the quote is taken from a passage where the people are doing what? They are not listening to Moses. They are not recognizing Moses for who he is and therefore listening to the word of God that Moses speaks. And that's where the author of Hebrews is going. It's where he's been already, right? So if we go back to Hebrews, uh, remember... That, uh, that part of, of his argument here is that Jesus is this great messenger, and he, he has a greater message. And so we're not going to, to go into it this week, but look at verse 7 in chapter 3, Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. right? So again, remember, in the back of his mind, always is the Exodus account and the Mosaic Covenant, the people of God in the Exodus. What happened in the Exodus? They heard the word of God from Moses and they ignored it. They rejected it. The author of Hebrews is saying, you've now heard from Jesus, the Son of God, the one that Moses, who was faithful in all the house and received much honor because of it, Christ is greater than Moses even. And Christ has spoken. Don't be like the people of Israel in the Old Testament who would not listen to Moses. Listen to Christ. That's going to be his exhortation as we continue. So he's introduced it here, chapter 3, verse 1. And he's, he, as we get into to the rest of these first six verses, uh, and he brings Moses into the argument, he said, uh, just as Moses, I'm in verse 2, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every the parenthetical, if your Bible puts verse 4 in parentheses, you should take a pencil and scribble the parentheses out. Verse 4 is integral to his argument. It's not a parenthetical aside. The editors of, of your Bible, as with mine, have made an unfortunate error. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. He just called Christ God. Did you catch that? It's not incidental. Moses was great. Jesus is God. Now, Moses was, a faith, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Again, this imagery, this language of, of speaking Right? And, and Moses, not merely as one who speaks God's word, but as a prophet, one who was faithful uh, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, the implication is by God. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we're going to get to a, a contingent uh, statement here in a second, a contingency uh, but before we launch into that, this is in, in all of this language, from verse three down through verse uh, the beginning of six. He's using this this imagery of house uh, of a house, and he uses house in both senses. On the one hand, he's talking about a physical structure, but in the the illustration, it's a physical structure, right? Uh, we, we've got uh, in our own culture. Uh, people who are famous for designing and building homes. Frank Lloyd Wright, for example. Right? A home is famous because Wright designed and built it. Now the homes themselves are famous justifiably. Wright was a, an architectural genius. Uh, he, some of his stuff may have been very strange. right? You might not want to live in one of his homes, but from an architectural perspective, what he did was genius. Uh, the homes have significant honor. They have value because they were designed and built by Wright. But right has far more value and honor than the homes he built, right? God has made all things, and Christ is God. Moses himself is made by God. Christ is the one who made him. Christ has more glory than Moses. Moses is a servant in the house. Christ is Lord over the house and hear how shifts from the, the building that's in the illustration to the people that it represents. When he says Moses was faithful in all God's house, he's not talking about a building. He's talking about a people, right? We, if you go back to, you don't have to turn with me, but if you go back to Numbers 12 and verse 7, uh, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. That's not talking about a building. It's talking about a people. God will use this language again won't he in 2 Samuel 7 when he says to David, you want to build me a house? Physical structure, no. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, God says. And he's talking about the the Davidic promise. He's talking about the Messiah. Uh, He's talking about the line of David, the dynasty of David that will ultimately result in a king being born in the line of David who will be king forever. And the house that he's speaking of is that king and all of his children. And that's us. right? Behold, the author of Hebrews says, quoting the Old Testament, I and the children you have given me. So here in Hebrews, it's a, it's a shocking, a startling Uh, and strong argument that the author of Hebrews is making. Jesus Christ is not a mere servant in the house. Uh, He is over God's house as a son. All of this is is building the the authority of Christ. It's pointing to the, the supremacy of the message that Christ Speaks. That's what the author of Hebrews is, is uh, slowly, carefully, intentionally building to here. Right? If the greatest prophet who has ever lived is Moses, Christ is greater. There, there, Christ isn't as great as Moses, he's not even merely greater than Moses. He's actually, existentially, different. He's on an entirely other plane. He is a completely different species. He is God. Moses was great. Jesus is a son. He's the son of God, God himself. All of this is going to come to rest, uh, no pun intended, uh, in verse 7. That And this is where we'll, we'll pick up next week. Uh, Let's, uh, let's finish then with the, the end of these six verses and the, the transition that the author is here making. So, verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. There's the, the exclamation point on the fact that he's not talking about a building. He's talking about us. We are his house. We belong to that Davidic dynasty. We are subjects of, children of, brothers of, depending on which image you're, you're pulling from Scripture, the Davidic King and Messiah, and therefore we are that house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Uh, one commentator I read put it this way, genuine faith perseveres. Genuine faith perseveres. And that's where the author of Hebrews is going in the uh, the verses to come. He's going to sustain this argument uh, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. uh, Calling us to hear the message that Christ speaks, believe that message, and live in that truth. Uh, that the, the message is is absolutely to be believed. It it came to us by the very Son of God. And He has proven Himself to be that Son and to be trustworthy. So we need to hear and believe and live as those who belong to Him. And there's something held out for us uh, that's going to be the focus of the author of Hebrews through the uh, the rest of three and in 4 up to 13, and that is the, the Sabbath rest that's ours. So over the next few weeks as we cover that section, we're going to, uh, to be giving attention to that rest uh, and what it means throughout Scripture, that rest as we saw it last week in the sermon from Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, to that rest as it's given to us in Moses in the fourth commandment, uh, how that rest was understood and practiced or not practiced by the people of God, throughout the Old Testament, what Christ has to say about that rest, and what the author of Hebrews is saying about that rest for us here. Uh, it's it's a, a, a central, vital part of the life of the Christian to understand what that rest is and how we've entered into it now and how we will enter into it in eternity. And so let me stop there and ask, are there any questions? We've got a few minutes left. Yep, David. I <clears throat> Yeah, that's right. The high priest of our confession, verse one, 3, 1. What does that mean? The high priest of our confession. Uh, and um, some commentators take apostle and high priest uh, both to refer to our confession. He is the apostle of our confession and the high priest of our confession. Others just put it together with high priest. Uh, I tend to be the former. I, I think it's the apostle of our confession and the high priest. A confession... Is uh, is a statement of the truth that we believe. That's what a confession is. Uh, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and especially for uh, the officers of the church, the the pastors, the ruling elders, the deacons, we we're required in order to fill these offices to say we believe the Westminster Confession of Faith is true in in the things that it asserts. Right. Uh, the idea of a a confession that is the uh, the content of our faith uh, is, it goes all the way back to the New Testament era. And we see that here. He's going to use this word confession later in the book, together with the, the article in Greek, the, right? The confession. Uh, and that indicates to us that his audience, his original audience, knows good and well exactly what he's talking about. It's probably something like the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we, we have evidence of. Uh, statements like the Apostles Creed, not exactly the same, existing in the churches very, very early on. There is some confession of faith that they all share in common. That's what the author of Hebrews is referring to. It may be as simple as Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That may be the confession. Notice he's the Apostle of the Confession. He's the one sent to to give us that confession, to tell us that truth that we are then to believe and therefore we confess, and he is the high priest of our confession. Uh, This is a a little more uh, difficult to draw a line between high priest and confession, but he is the high priest of our confession in as much as we are only able to confess this truth because this high priest. Has, has done what high priests do. Uh, he's made atonement for us so that there's fellowship between God and man. Because we have this high priest who has established, reestablished fellowship between God and man, we make this confession. So to begin with confession and work backwards, we make this confession. We are able to and we do make this confession because we have a high priest who mediates between us and God. Jesus Christ is the Apostle and the High Priest of our confession. So, other questions? Okay, we're out of time. What we'll do is next week pick up in verse 7, and uh, and I don't know how far we'll get. I, I have no intention of getting all the way through 4.13 next week, uh, but we'll just begin working through it, and we'll get as far as we, uh, we can. So... Um, Billy, by any chance, do we know when the missionary is going to be here? Has she responded yet? Okay. Uh, we'll have a missionary take some time in Sunday school uh, over one of the next few Sundays. I'm not sure if that will be... I, I think it was the 7th and the 14th is what we offered her? The 7th is the picnic, so I think we were kind of hoping that's when she would come. Um, so, okay. Uh, let me close with some prayer. Father, thank you so much for time together this morning, for your word for the encouragement that it is to us that we are indeed brothers and sisters, that we share in a heavenly calling uh, that because of Christ, as surely as we share in flesh and blood, as surely as Christ has shared with us in flesh and blood, we now surely share in a heavenly calling. We look forward to the day uh, that, that we will be together with Christ in heaven forever. We give thanks for these things in Christ's name. Amen.